turn now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. If you do have a pew Bible, that is on page 918. We're reading Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. Again, please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came to him a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. And Cornelius, Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your testimonies are our heritage forever, for they are the joy of our hearts. We incline our hearts to perform your statutes forever to the end. Lord, give us life according to your steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Why do we build walls? And are walls ever a good thing? Now, ultimately, I think walls are necessitated by the fall. There would have been no need for protection or preservation from other people or things like wild animals before the fall. But in this world in which we live, they are necessary. Physical structures to protect people from people. Ancient cities had walls for good reason. And my family lived for a decade in the land with the most famous wall in the world, the Great Wall of China. There's a saying in Chinese that unless you've been to the Great Wall, you are not a great man. And I had been there many times and I had some friends who had never been. So I got to harass them and say, well, you're not, you're not a great man because you haven't been to the Great Wall. Kind of, kind of fun. But it's a mind-blowing structure built for protection, keeping out invading armies. But we don't just put up literal physical walls to protect ourselves. In that same country, there is another famous wall. They call it the Great Firewall of China. That's, the, that's what the locals call it. It's the Chinese Communist Party's effort to keep out information coming in from the outside, an internet firewall to protect people, right, from outside influence. Now, there is a necessity, I would argue, for those types of firewalls. We want to protect our children from harmful things coming into our homes, so we, we set up similar types of firewalls. That's a wise thing to do. But whether it's a literal physical structure or a digital wall of protection, again, we have to ask, what is the ultimate purpose? And there are other types of walls that we put up, don't we? Walls between people that aren't physical or digital. 
not something tangible, but oftentimes something far more sinister. We put up walls in attempts at self-protection and self-preservation. We do this at large group levels, ethnically, culturally, nationally, religiously. And we do it at individual levels as well. Ultimately, I think this is a heart issue, just like anything else. And there's nothing new under the sun with this idea of us putting up walls to protect ourselves. It's no less an issue in our day than it was in the ancient world. Our Lord Jesus often pushed against these types of walls in his earthly ministry, whether tangibly, as he did in his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, or parabolically, as he did in his teaching about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. It's no surprise here in Acts that the followers of Jesus must confront both the group level and individual level walls that we are tempted to construct to keep others out and to preserve ourselves. And what better person than Peter to be our example? Peter, the disciple who ought to probably be the most relatable for us who was constantly putting his foot in his mouth, constantly asking boneheaded questions, and who denied his master when the pressure was cranked up. We see in our text today, Peter's perplexing predicament. We have this P alliteration again. We began this series three weeks in a row in October with three great P alliterations, and then Donovan, who's not here for today for me to harass him, but he broke the streak, so I'm trying to bring it back. So, Peter's perplexing predicament. I argued a few weeks ago that Saul's conversion is the most consequential event in the New Testament outside of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I stand by that claim, but I think the events here in chapter 10 verse 1 through eleven eighteen are a very close second. And R.C. Sproul says that Acts chapter 10 is the most important chapter in all of the New Testament. So have a hard time arguing with R.C., but I'm still going to stick with uh, Acts 9 first and then Acts 10. But this is the longest single narrative in the book of Acts from Acts 10, 1 through eleven. 18. We are going to break this down into three parts over the next three weeks. We're going to look at today kind of the who's in and who's out, chapter 10, 1 to 33. Next week, we're going to see how do we know, how do we know who's in and who's out. That's going to be verses 34 through 48. And then the following week, what does it mean? We're going to look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. So who's in and who's out? How do we know who's in and who's out, and what does it mean? Now, this familiar account of this interaction between Peter and Cornelius is retold, is retold in some fashion up to four times in chapters 10 and 11, and then chapter 15. So I think the implications here are far-reaching, and it addresses the question of the building up and the tearing down of walls, both in their day and for the church ever since. And it is impossible to overestimate the significance of the Jew-Gentile divide in the first century. The ethnic, social, and religious barriers were humanly insurmountable. 
you can go, I mean, you can go and read about this. It's just mind boggling, probably more hatred than we see anywhere in our world today in terms of clashes between ethnicities. What we are about to witness between Cornelius and Peter can only be understood by rightly seeing it as a supernatural work of the triune God to tear down these insurmountable walls, conquer individual hearts, and reconcile those whom he alone can bring together. Say that again, only through a supernatural work of our triune God can he tear down these insurmountable walls, conquer individual hearts, and reconcile those whom he alone can bring together. Now remember Luke's desire to give Theophilus an orderly account here. He does this here by recording the events of four consecutive days. We're going to use these days as a general outline, not because it's actually the main focus of the text, but I think it does provide us with some nice markers in terms of our reading and our understanding of this text. Now, one thing that I need to mention about the context, we need to look back at chapter nine, at the last verse of chapter nine, which I didn't explain last week. You may have caught that, and that was purposeful, but I will explain it now. At the end of the um, healing of Tabitha, Peter goes and he stays in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner, two Simons dwelling together. There's some debate about whether the Simon, the tanner was a Jew or a Gentile. Regardless, the point is, is that Peter is dwelling in the house of a man who had a trade who was unclean. He would have been slaughtering animals and tanning their hides probably in his home. And this would have been an unclean place for a Jew to be. So there is We're going to see the irony of Peter dwelling in this place with what is to follow. So we come to chapter 10 then, and we see here in day one, Cornelius's vision and the sending for Peter in verses one through eight. The scene shifts from Joppa to Caesarea, this coastal town, which is 30 miles north of Joppa, where the two Simons were dwelling. We're introduced here to a centurion named Cornelius. Centurion was the head of a hundred soldiers. It mentions here the Italian cohort. A cohort was six groups of a hundred soldiers. So it's possible that Cornelius was the head over 600 men. He's an important figure. We're told that he is devout and God-fearing. There are a lot of scholarly debates about this, whether this term God-fearing is some official, official term, some official classification of Gentiles. Um, Did Cornelius attend synagogue regularly? That's debated. Um, Probably was not a full convert to Judaism. He's not called a proselyte here, which would have been the term that was used. So he was, he was probably not circumcised. He was doing certain things um, that were according to Jewish rituals, but maybe not everything. But nonetheless, he had a household that feared God. We're told that he gave alms generously, so his generosity was was a big thing, and he was a man of prayer. This is not a superficial description here of Cornelius. He was not doing outwardly religious things just for the sake of religiosity. 
He is engaged here at prayer, we're told, in verse 3, in the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., which would, was a common Jewish practice. And during this time of prayer, he's visited in a vision by an angel. And notice his rightful response. He's terrified, right? Can you imagine? You're in the middle of praying and an angel comes and interrupts your prayer time. I think as readers, we're probably meant to see the parallel between Cornelius and Peter's visions here in this chapter and Paul and Ananias' visions in chapter 9. These history-changing events, Saul's conversion and what we see happen here between Peter and Cornelius, these are not the results of human ingenuity. These are the results of the Lord sovereignly working in history through his human agents. Don't miss that. And even Cornelius' response here, what is it, Lord, sounds like Paul's response to being blinded and knocked to the ground by Jesus when Paul says, who are you, Lord? Very similar there. And here the angel responds to Cornelius in the middle of Verse 4, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, it's worth pausing here and asking what this is all about. Here is this Gentile Roman soldier following at least partially the Jewish religious practices, and we're told that his prayers and his alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, is this teaching some kind of moral ability to please God and to work our way toward him through outward practices. Brian Vickers addresses this in his commentary. He says, this is not an example of God helping those who help themselves, meeting someone halfway or acting because he recognizes good works and identifies Cornelius as a good candidate for the kingdom. Vickers makes a good argument from the Old Testament scriptures that the Lord has always been after the heart of the worshiper and not after external ritual. He goes on, he says, This Gentile soldier is closer to God than were all of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who offered sacrifices, kept traditions, and killed the Messiah. It is fitting that the true nature of acceptable sacrifices to God is tied to the end of the Mosaic food laws and to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. Cornelius's prayers and alms, however, do not save him. God directs him to Peter for that. Let us not miss the significance of this. Cornelius and his household still need to hear the gospel. It's not enough to offer prayers to God or even to be visited by an angel. God used a human messenger in chapter 9, Ananias, to visit Saul, that he might regain his sight. And he will use a human messenger here, Peter, to visit Cornelius' household and preach the gospel to them. And we'll see that next week. But here in verses 5 through 8, Cornelius is instructed to send men to Joppa to Peter, So he sends two of his servants and a soldier on the 30-mile trek. Now we come to day two. 
Day two is Peter's perplexing vision and the receiving of guests. This is verse 9 through 23a. Cornelius's men are on their way to Joppa, and Peter goes up at noon onto the rooftop to pray while the meal is being prepared below, and he is hungry. Verse 10, he falls into a trance. What happens next is worldview shaking for Peter. He sees this vision in 11 and 12 of the heavens being opened and this sheet descends. It's being let down by its four corners, probably representing north, south, east, and west. It's this idea that it's covering the whole earth. And in this sheet are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There's a mixture here of clean animals and unclean animals, which you can go and read about in Leviticus chapter 11, all the descriptions of what are clean and what are unclean. We see then this shocking event here when in verse 13, a voice comes to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, being the good law-abiding Jew, Here's the irony, right? Because he's dwelling in this unclean house. He says in verse 14, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, the common here would have been the clean animals that are now contaminated because they are mixed with these unclean animals. He's saying, I cannot eat these things. Even these things that were clean, they are now common because of this mixture with the unclean animals. And we see in verse 15, then I think, what is the hinge of this whole passage? The rebuke of Peter that will change the trajectory of the whole mission of the church. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Don't miss the subtle or maybe not so subtle parallel here of Peter's denying the Lord three times. We've seen that before. While Peter is perplexed about this vision, the Lord's orchestration of these events is beautifully unfolding. Cornelius' men arrive, they ask for Peter, and the Holy Spirit tells Peter in verse 20, Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. If you look at verse 20 there, if you have the ESV, there should be a footnote after the words without hesitation. You look down, it says, making no distinction. Literally, we could translate that without passing judgment or without criticism. Peter obeys the Spirit's command in verse 21, but he's still in the dark. See his question there. What is the reason for your coming. He goes down to the men and tells them he's the one he's looking for and then asks, what is the reason for your coming? The men explain their purpose in verse 22 and in the first line of verse 23. Explain that Cornelius, the upright and God-fearing man, sent them to send for him to come to his house and to hear what he 
has to say. Verse 23 says, so he invited them in to be his guests. <clears throat> now, don't miss the significance of some of the language here. We see it throughout this passage, this idea of sending and receiving. Cornelius sending for Peter. Peter receiving Cornelius's men to be his guests. We will see Cornelius receive Peter and the brothers that went with him. We're starting to see the sign of this, of this intermingling and this breaking down of walls. But it's not just enough to put up with each other, not just enough to be in each other's presence. There's something much more dramatic that needs to happen. These men also convey to Peter that the angel told, told Cornelius to send for Peter to come. We saw this to his house so that his household might hear what Peter has to say. As I mentioned earlier, Cornelius and his household, they still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them. Let us not forget Paul's great declaration in Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now we come to our third day. It's the shortest description of all of the days. Literally one sentence. It's not even, not even a full verse. But it's not an insignificant day. Day three is the mixed company travel day. You see this in the second half of verse 23. The next day he, Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now, the previous day would have involved a meal between the two Simons and those dwelling in the house, along with Cornelius's men. Now we have 10 men who begin this 30-mile journey together, and we learn from chapter 11, verse 12, when Peter's telling a, retelling the account of this in the church in Jerusalem, that he took six brothers with him. So it's Peter and six brothers, the seven of them, and Cornelius's, Cornelius's three men. This journey would have included not only spending the night together, I'm sure camping out on the roadside somewhere, but sharing at least a couple of meals together during this 30-mile journey, which would have taken about 10 hours for them to walk. And we see here, without being given much description by Luke, that Peter's walls are being confronted. And notice how the Lord's fingerprints are all over these events. How he is graciously placing Peter in these challenging situations and confronting him so that he might lay aside the things that are keeping him from obeying the second great commandment to love his neighbor as himself. We are meant to wait, we are meant to feel the weight of the tension that Peter felt. Now, Peter was almost undoubtedly there in Luke 11 when the lawyer stood up and tested Jesus about the law and asking in response to Jesus' reminder about 
love for neighbor, the question, and who is my neighbor? How do we ask this same question today? How do we try to get around the command for neighbor love? Maybe letting different forms of tribalism creep in as we shut people out. It happens in families, schools, workplaces, and yes, even in churches. Jamie Dunlop, who's a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., recently wrote a book called Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in Your Church. I'm not, this isn't some like, I'm not trying to say anything here. (laughs) But it tackles topics like loving, these are the titles of the chapters, loving, loving those people, forgiving those people, not judging and despising those people. I haven't read the book yet, but I have listened to a podcast interview that he did. And I would wholeheartedly recommend this book because the unity of the church is so important. For Livingstone Church and for Good Hope Presbyterian Church right now, as we are preparing for a big change, unity is vitally important. How does Livingstone Church continue to be a light for Christ in Oshkosh as we prepare to send away a fifth of our people? How does Good Hope Presbyterian Church establish a faithful and enduring witness for Christ in Stevens Point in the midst of a culturally and politic, a cultural and political climate that wants to build walls and draw lines between tribes? It needs to start here, right? It needs to start among us. Jamie Dunlop also wrote a book called Compelling Community. It's a book that our some some of the guys in our church read as we were starting to plant the church. He talks about the miracle, and I've, I've probably shared this before, but the miracle of a group of people gathering together to worship God like this on a Sunday morning. If you look around, right, you would look and say, well, if it wasn't for this, like, I probably wouldn't be hanging out at this person's house. And that's not because we don't like each other, or, but we just may not have like run in the same groups or we didn't have certain things in common in and of ourselves. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't choose to be with this group of people and not just our church, but any church you walk in and you see the dynamics in different churches. And he's arguing that it's a miracle of the Holy spirit that any church survives and thrives, that there's unity in any church. It's only the work of the spirit of God that can cause people with all kinds of different backgrounds and different beliefs about all kinds of different things to be united and to love each other and to serve each other and to serve God together. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope in this endeavor. And we're going to continue to see as we preach through the book of Acts that Jesus' original commission to his disciples in Acts 1.8, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're going to see that that was not only about overcoming geographic barriers as the gospel went forth to the end of the earth, but it's also about overcoming ethnic and social and political barriers as well. And we need to ask, will the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century continue to live in obedience to our Lord's commission 
as we seek to see people from every tribe and language and people and nation bow the knee to King Jesus. Now, I ended up saying more under the heading of this half verse than I did for days one and two. I told you that it wasn't an insignificant day. Let's look now at day four. Day four is a purposefully planned meeting between Peter and Cornelius. We see this in verses 24 to 33. These 10 men of mixed company roll into Caesarea. They arrive at Cornelius' house where he and his household and his friends had gathered together. And Peter comes in and Cornelius falls at his feet and worships him, which Peter quickly and rightly corrects in verse 26. Peter enters the house to find many gathered and he begins to speak not preaching yet, but clarifying his coming and asking another question related to his coming, but related to the question back in verse 21. The clarification of his coming in verses 28 and 29 is a further explanation of the Lord's command to him in verse 15, which I argued is the hinge of the whole passage. Peter breaks the ice here in verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now, this word unlawful here probably means something more like taboo. Peter should not have traveled with and ate with Cornelius's men on this journey, and he definitely should not be gathered with all of these Gentiles right now in Cornelius's house. But notice the following words. But God, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. I had my ideas, Peter says, I had my taboos, but God said otherwise. And notice the shift here from the original vision. Peter gets it now. In verse 15, it appeared that animals were the concern. But it was never really about animals. The vision the Lord gave to Peter as he was hungry and thinking about food was a gracious way to reveal to him a bigger truth. Peter had been making improper distinctions between people, deeming those made in God's image common or unclean. So Peter gets it now and He obeys the Lord, we see in verse 29, says, When I was sent for, I came without objection. And even though Cornelius' men told him in verse 22 why they sent for him, Peter still needs to hear it from Cornelius himself, asking at the end of verse 29, I ask then why you sent for me. Cornelius recounts the details of this vision from day one in verses 30 to 32, and then answers Peter's question in verse 33. Look with me. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I love how John Stott explains this. In describing how the angel did not preach the gospel directly to Cornelius because the Lord had entrusted Peter with the task, Stott says the primary question 
was how God would deal with Peter. How would he succeed in breaking down Peter's deep-seated racial intolerance? The principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius, but the conversion of Peter. Think about that for a moment. The primary subject, the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius, but the conversion of Peter. Yes, Cornelius and his household needed to hear the gospel, and they will, which we'll look at next week. But God needed to do a work in his messenger just as much as he did in those receiving this message. This is going to be a driving theme the next two weeks. From then, and then, and then from the middle of chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas, they symbolically turn away from ministering to the Jews and they focus their attention on the Gentiles, that will be the emphasis of Paul's missionary journeys throughout the whole second half of Acts. And this might be a great opportunity for us to pause and to do some self-reflection. Are we predetermining, as Peter was, what type of person might be acceptable in God's sight? It's so easy to do, isn't it? We're conditioned to do this. We've been conditioned to do this our whole lives in this fallen world. To reinforce the building of invisible walls that keep people separated from one another. Again, even in the church. Are we, brothers and sisters, like Peter, willing to be confronted and corrected by the Lord in these areas? Again, Brian Vickers is very helpful here. He says, even though Peter has been taught personally by Jesus, has received the Spirit, has powerfully preached the gospel, and has performed miraculous signs in the name of Jesus, taking this next step in the kingdom challenges him to the core of his being. It has not occurred to Peter that following Jesus would mean a new way of looking at virtually everything he holds dear. This is the beauty of the cost of discipleship, is it not? Letting the Lord confront everything that we hold dear when we come to him. And not being content with mere lip service to him as we grow as disciples, but putting our money where our mouth is and walking the talk. What we see in this passage and what we will explore more in the coming weeks is the beauty of the universality of the Christian faith. It does not mean universalism. It doesn't mean that all roads lead to God, however one chooses to get there. Cornelius' own conversion militates against that view. But that Christianity is universally true. It's universally true and it's acceptable, it's accessible to people regardless of race or class or ethnicity or religious background or whatever other artificial walls the world wants to put in place or that we are tempted to put in place. Jesus' death on the cross tore down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Go home and read the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 in preparation for next week. The same message to those in the first century is what is needed in our world today in the 21st century. Jesus is Lord, and he is the only wall terror downer. He's the only unity bringer. 
It's what the church needs to recognize and to live out so that our witness to the world is clear and unapologetic and undeniable. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, this is the Lord's glorious plan that you are invited to be a part of. Turn to him so that you might be saved from your sin. And like Peter, may he grant you a new way of looking at everything that you hold dear. Livingstone Church, Good Hope Presbyterian Church. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That his way may be known on the earth and his saving power among all nations. Let us pray. Lord, you are gracious, and you have shined your face upon us in Jesus Christ. May we be those who know you and make your name known throughout all the earth, that your saving power might be seen and embraced and gloried in among all nations. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.